0: Good morning everybody. How are you guys feeling this morning? Good? Wonderful. Awesome. Fantastic. Welcome. My name is Brent. I have the honor of serving as the pastor here at U City Family Church and I'm just thrilled that you're here. Uh, we are launching a brand new series today called Red Letters, The Transforming Words of Jesus. Um, I want to start today with a question and I think I probably know the answer to this question. But how many of you are ready for this political cycle to be over? Anybody with me on that? Yeah. (laughs) Unanimous. Um, I would literally like to go out camping in the woods without a phone or a computer between now and November 9th to avoid hearing any more talk about any of the nefarious conduct of any political candidate on any side of the aisle. Uh, It's just a life-sucking, soul-crushing <laughs> span of my life that I cannot get back. Um, so today, we're going to focus on some of the words of Jesus, which are life-affirming and and revitalizing and that will breathe life into you uh, and that will strengthen you and encourage you and inspire you. How many of you could use some inspiration today? So I wondered uh, this week, I wondered, like, is this political cycle just, just totally different from all of the other ones before? Like, is this the worst? Like, have we ever been this bad before? And so I did a little digging historically. It turns out that no, there's been some pretty raunchy and nasty uh, uh, political debates before. In fact, some of the language that I found, um, I can't actually use in church uh, because there are teenagers here and they've never heard those words, right? <laughs> teenagers, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, got, I did grab a few. Uh, Thomas Paine wrote this to George Washington. He said, you, sir, are treacherous in private friendship and a hypocrite in public life. The world will be puzzled to, dis- to decide whether you are an apostate or an imposter, whether you have abandoned good principles or whether you ever had any. Good, sir. Um, so, <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt uh, said this about William McKinley. He has no more backbone than a chocolate eclair. Oh, <laughs> uh, that was pretty... Clever actually. Um, Lyndon Johnson said this about Gerald Ford. Ford is a nice guy, but he played too much football with his helmet off. So, yeah, I mean, it's like life, (laughs) political discussions have always been life sucking, soul crushing, uh, draining. But we're going to spend some time today on what Jesus says about politics. Because Jesus' words, even according to him, he said, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. When Jesus talks about the mundane things in our life and in our world like politics, he elevates them from the mundane to the majestic. He takes them out of the strictly political and elevates them to the spiritual. And so we're going to spend some time... Exploring his words today. Now, the reason the series is called Red Letters, um, and and some of you would know this, right? Uh, If you're over 30. But if you're under 30, um, and the only Bible you've ever read is on an app, I want to show you an an ancient artifact um, that you may never have seen. They used to print this in book form back in the olden days. um, And they bound it in leather. And then on the inside, uh, where it came to... Jesus' words, they would actually put them in red ink um, and that way you would be able to distinguish between the words of Jesus and the words of everybody else. And so we're going to spend the next several weeks in the, re- in the red letters, in the words of Jesus because we need some spirit and some life and some encouragement and some hope breathed into us after all of the madness and insanity of the political process. So this series, this series is called uh, Red Letters, but this sermon is called Give It Back. Somebody say to your neighbor, give it back. When somebody has something of yours, you want them to give it back. So Jesus is going to be talking to us about um, literally everything. And what he says about everything is that God owns it and you need to give it back. Um, so... A couple ways that you can go when you're preaching about politics. Uh, One way is that you can be really careful to not offend anyone. Um, The other way that you can go, and this is the way that Jesus did, he was very careful to equally offend everyone. So what I'm going to try to do uh, is equally offend everyone today, um, including myself and my wife and everybody else. Um, So uh, just pray that we uh, we can all be equally offended. Together, as a community, all right? Uh, because there are some sins that Christians love to commit during the election cycle. And I've, and I've categorized them for you, and I'm going to list them for you. Uh, see if you recognize any of these. Number 10 is messianism. This is the sin of believing that your candidate will single-handedly usher in the kingdom of heaven on earth. Thank you. There's, uh, just, some people are like, oh, he won't or she won't? Oh, okay. Okay. Um, Number nine, selective scripturization. This is the sin of quoting only scriptures that support your candidate while ignoring any scripture that supports your opponent. Number number eight, easy believism. This is the sin of believing the best about your candidate and the worst about their opponent despite the evidence to the contrary. Number seven is selective amnesia. This is the sin of forgetting the arguments you you used to use but have abandoned because they can now be used against you. Ramblism. This is the sin of rambling incoherently while you're trying to think of a fresh insult for your opponent. One-issueism. This is the sin of ignoring the complexity of a political issue in order to keep your half-baked views intact. We all do that. Strawmanism. This is the sin of mischaracterizing your opponent's views so that you can swiftly and utterly destroy them. I love this one. I'm not here to argueism. This is the sin of starting a political argument, but then bailing out halfway through by saying, I'm not here to argue with you. Some of us are particularly uh, prone to that um, one. <laughs> we have lots of fun debates in my house. Um, number two, name callingism, the sin of confusing name calling with logic. Number one, Freak outism. This is the sin of believing that the other candidate will single handedly usher in the apocalypse. Is anybody guilty of any of these sins? <laughs> Admit it. Is anybody sitting next to a person who's guilty of these? <laughs> Come on. So we shouldn't be surprised uh, when we hear these kinds of sort of crass political discussions. Um, politics has always been about gamesmanship. It's always been about one-upmanship. It's always been about trapping your opponent into doing something or saying something that he or she shouldn't do. And that's what happened to Jesus. We're going to explore today a story where some uh, religious leaders came to Jesus and they were political leaders and religious leaders and they sought to trap him in an argument in order to undermine his ministry And in an effort to uh, debunk his leadership among the people who were following him. But what Jesus did is he took this political discussion and he elevated it to the spiritual. And that's what I'm going to try to do with us today. So bear with me as we explore the words of Jesus and try to elevate ourselves out of the morass and the nitty-gritty and the grist and the grind of the current political situation and we see the big picture of who God is and who we are in relation to him. Uh, So here's how the story begins. It says that a group of religious leaders sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians, now remember the Pharisees and the Herodians because I'm going to talk about them in just a second, sent some Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. It says, they came to him and they said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. We know, teacher, that you are not swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. You're no respecter of persons, Jesus, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now, if somebody is buttering you up this much, just get ready because the hammer's about to fall, okay? They're saying, oh, Jesus, you're just such a great teacher. You're such a good teacher. And we know that you would never say anything that would be wrong. So we just have a a very simple uh, and important question for you today, Jesus. And here's what they say. Jesus, is it right for us to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or is it not right For us to pay the imperial tax to Caesar. Should we pay this tax? Or should we not pay this tax? Now, this may seem like a totally innocuous question to you, right? But what's happening in that time, this question is a trap. This question is a setup. This question is a snare. Because you've got the Herodians and the Pharisees. The Herodians were political insiders. They had been set up by the Roman government. They had been propped up by the Roman Senate. And Rome was now overseeing all of Jerusalem. They had come in and they had taken over Jerusalem in Jesus' time. And so they were the oppressors. They were the overseers of this entire city, of this entire region. And the Herodians loved their oppressors. Because their oppressors are the ones that prop them up. So they wanted Jesus to say, no, don't pay the tax. No, they wanted him to say, don't pay the tax. Because then they would run back to their Roman overlords and say, Jesus said, don't pay the tax. He needs to be arrested. He needs to be executed, right? And this is going to be their way to get rid of Jesus. They want him to answer the question, no, don't pay the tax. Then on the other hand, you've got the Pharisees. The Pharisees hated the tax, They despised the tax. They hated paying any money to Caesar because Caesar was oppressing them. In fact, they they believed that it was their religious obligation to not pay the tax. And so they wanted Jesus to say, yes, pay the tax. Because if Jesus said pay the tax, then he would lose all credibility with all of his followers and all of the folks who were following uh, uh, the the, the, um, Jewish law and, they would, and, and, and Jesus would lose all credibility. People would think he was a sellout and a traitor. So this was a no-win situation. If Jesus says, no, don't pay the tax, he's going to get arrested. If Jesus says, yes, pay the tax, nobody's going to follow him anymore. So what does Jesus do? You're sitting at the edge of your seat wanting to know. Here's what Jesus does. Scripture says Jesus knew their hypocrisy. And so he said to them, why are you trying to trap me, right? Why are you trying to ensnare me right now? He said, bring me a quarter and let me look at it. Who's got a quarter? Does anybody got a quarter I can borrow? Come on, let me see this quarter. Thank you. Excellent, okay. I forgot to give the person from the first service their quarterback, so (laughs) it's somewhere around here. We'll make sure and get that quarterback. Thank you, Dom, you'll get this quarterback. So Jesus holds up a quarter, and he says, whose image is on this quarter. And they say, George Washington. Thank you. Man, we're getting lots of feedback today from the Congress. Let's just talk it out. Give me a stool. They said, George Washington is on this quarter. And then Jesus said, then give to Washington that which belongs to Washington and give to God that which belongs to God. And it says in the scripture that the people who were listening, the Herodians and the Pharisees, were stunned and amazed and they just walked away. Jesus is saying in this moment, if something belongs to someone, give it back. If it belongs to Caesar, give it to Caesar. If it belongs to God, give it God. Now, on first impression, you might think, look, is he just dodging the question? Is this just a clever way to avoid answering this difficult political question? But here's what Jesus is doing. He is elevating this conversation from politics to providence. He's taking it out of a discussion about your political affiliation, and he's saying, I want you to examine your spiritual Identity. I want to elevate this conversation out of the mundane nuts and bolts and the grist of this current hot political situation and I want to take a moment and I want to elevate you to understand who you really are, who God really is and what your relationship with him is all about. So when he says give unto Caesar that which is Caesar, he's saying don't ignore the current political situation. Don't run from it. Don't hide from it, don't deny it, don't step away from it. But on the other hand, put it in its proper context. Because while Caesar sits on the throne of Rome, God still sits on the throne of heaven. Do not invest all of your energy, your hope, your dreams, your passions, your love into this current political situation. Because ultimately, these, this is a blip on the horizon of history. And ultimately, God still reigns. He's got this under control. So here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying to the political outsiders. He's saying when you're tempted to give up, when you're tempted to despair, when you're tempted to believe there's little hope, you need to remember that there is a loving and mighty God who is overseeing all the workings of the universe, always has and always will. He's in charge. He's in control. He's saying the coin may belong to Caesar, but Caesar belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. So do not get stuck in the trenches of identifying yourself too tightly with a politician or with a political party because ultimately your identity is with God. He's saying, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's but give unto God that which is God. He's saying to the political outsiders who are afraid, he's saying, give your fear to God. If you're anxious about things that you've heard over the last several weeks and months, if you're worried about things that are being said, if you're uh, afraid about where things are going and what's going on both here and abroad, give that fear to God. He's still in control. He's still in charge. Scripture says that God brings one down and raises another up. He deposes kings and raises up others. He changes the times and the seasons. God is still in control. You don't have to be afraid. When I was a kid, I heard this story. Uh, uh, It was a, a legend about a Cherokee father and son. And I'm pretty sure this legend isn't true. Uh, but generally, preachers don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. So I'm going to go ahead and tell this story. Uh, now, I, I think it's a legend, but it's a, it, it, I remember hearing it when I was a kid, and it, and it hit me, and I want to share it with you. Um, the story is about a, a Cherokee father who's taking his son uh, through a rite of passage to become a man. And part of the, the rite of passage is that the father takes the son, and they go deep into the woods. And the father blindfolds the son as they head out into the woods. And they go deep, 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 deep into the woods. And the father takes the son out and he says, son, listen, I'm going to take you out here. I'm going to put you down in a clearing and you're going to spend the night out here in the woods. And here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to take the blindfold off. No matter how scared you get, how panicked you get, I don't want you crying out for help. I don't want you trying to run back home to mom. I want you to sit out here on this log all night long. And after you do that, you'll be a man. And so the father takes the son and he takes him way out in the woods. He puts the blindfold on and he sets the son down. And, the, and the, the sun begins to fade. The cold night air begins to move in around this boy. Uh, The boy begins to hear the rustle of leaves off in the distance. And he wonders, is there a wild animal out there that's going to try to get me? He hears the howling of wolves off in the distance. He hears the cold wind whipping through the trees. And he's scared and he's uh, panicking and he's terrified. But he's remembering the words of his father saying, just stay here. Don't move. It's going to be okay. Right? And so he sits there all night long, all by himself on this log in this clearing. And slowly, the morning sun comes up, and he begins to feel the rays of sunshine on his skin. And the little boy takes off his blindfold, and he looks over, and suddenly he realizes his father has been sitting on the log next to him all night long, watching over him, protecting him. When he thought he was alone, he was not alone. When he thought he was in danger, he was not in danger. When he thought there was no one to help him, there was someone to help him right there. This is the way God is with you and I. In every situation, yes, in the political situation, but in every aspect of your life, God is there right here, right now, with you, to protect you, to lead you, to guide you, to strengthen you, to inspire you, to encourage you, to bring you to where he wants you to be, to grow you into the man or the woman that he wants you to be. You do not have to fear. God is always at Your side. When Moses was about to transition out of leadership, he had been leading the children of Israel for 40 years. And there's going to be a political transition. There's going to be be a handing off of power. The children of Israel were terrified because all the only leadership they knew was Moses' leadership. They trusted him, he had led them well, and now he's getting ready to hand off leadership. And the children of Israel, the scripture says, were horrified. They didn't know what was going to happen. What's the next leader going to be like? What's he going to do? Who's he going to be? And here's what Moses said to them, he said, be strong and courageous, children of Israel. Do not be afraid, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Today, as we face a country and a world that is deeply divided by race by politics, by class, as we face an uncertain future both here and abroad, the Lord is saying to you and me, be courageous. Do not be afraid, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Give God your fear. Give Him your anxiety. Give Him your worry. He's there to carry it all. So that's what he says to the political outsiders. Here's what he says to the political insiders. He says, give your hope to God. To those who are the Herodians who are saying, hey, we're in with Rome. We've got it good. We're all set up. We're moving into what we believe is going to be a great and shining and glorious future. He's saying, don't put your hope in men, guys. Rome will fall. Don't put your hope and your trust in politicians. Don't put your hope and trust in chariots. Don't put your hope and trust in armies and tanks. But put your trust in the Lord. I went back and did some research about the political promises of various presidents over time. So I just got a few here for you. President McKinley promised patriotism, protection, and prosperity. He did the three Ps. I do that sometimes in sermons, so I kind of like that. Patriotism, protection, and prosperity. That's what's going to happen if you elect me. President Harding promised a return to normalcy. That's like the least catchy slogan I've ever... (laughs) What a return to normalcy. Okay. Um, President Eisenhower promised peace and prosperity. President Ford promised to make us proud again. President Carter promised a leader for a change. President Reagan promised to make America great again. President George H.W. Bush promised a kinder, gentler nation. President Bill Clinton promised to put people first. President George W. Bush promised to leave no child behind. And President Obama promised change we can believe in. And when the dust settles on every political candidate, no matter how well-intentioned, no matter how well-meaning, no matter how much effort and energy they put into it, no one none of us can live up to the promises and the hopes and the aspirations that we have for our future. No no politician can possibly lead us into the peace and prosperity that they promise. They can't. None of us could either. I'm not faulting them. I'm saying, human beings, we don't have the capacity on our own to bring God's kingdom on earth, to bring peace on earth to all men. We just don't have it. We've never had it. We never will have it outside of the strength of God. So am I saying like, hey, don't get involved in the political situation? No. Dive in. Get in there. Get on the ground. Do what you do. Whatever political candidate you support, go for it. Be strong. Get in there. But if you're putting your hope, if you're putting your worship, if you're putting your heart, I mean your soul, and believing that this is going to bring prosperity and peace, whoever your person is, you're going to be disappointed, you're going to be jaded, you're going to become cynical, because history will just demonstrate over and over and over again that outside of the purview of God, we just can't do it on our own. In fact, one of the greatest political leaders uh, in history wrote these words, King David, in Psalm 146. He said, Do not put your trust in princes, Do not put your trust in human beings who cannot save you. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. He said, blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God, because he is the maker of heaven and earth. The sea and everything in it. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. And the Lord frustrates the way of the wicked. Put your trust, you guys, today. Put your trust in the Lord. Put your trust in him. Give Washington what is Washington's, give Caesar what is Caesar's, but put your heart and your soul and your mind and your spirit in God. Follow him with everything you have got. Because when you do, you are part of a bigger picture. You're part of a grander narrative. You're part of a bigger identity. When the dust settles on this election and we're 20 years down the road and 40 years down the road and 100 years down the road, what lasts is God's word. Final thing that Jesus is is implying in this statement, saying, "Give your hope, give your fear, and ultimately give yourself, your whole self, to God." When Jesus held up the coin, he was doing he was he was he was sort of messing with the people that were around him, because when he asked the question, when he said, "Hey, whose image is this coin made in? And whose image is this made?" he said. Whose image is on this coin, he said. And he knew that he was making a reference that every single person in his audience understood because they had all memorized the scripture when they were little kids. Genesis 127, here's what it says. It says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. What Jesus was doing is saying, look, Caesar's face is stamped on this coin. So give the coin back to Caesar. But God's face is stamped on your heart and your soul. You are made in his image. You are minted from the presses of God. Give your soul, give your life, give your heart, give your service, give your work, give your time, give your energy back to God. Give it all back. He's saying to each and every one of us today that wherever we land and however this whole election cycle ends, which I pray that it just ends soon. <laughs> Can we just end it? Give it all back to God. Here's what uh, he's saying to us. And, and, and again, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying, because I think it's important for Christians to be involved in the political process. I really do. I think it's very important to get engaged and get involved. And we, meet, we need more followers of Jesus uh, to get engaged in the political process. But we need to do it with a complete and full and total understanding that ultimate power rests in him and that we trust him with the future and that he raises up kings and he puts kings down and he is lord and savior and has been through this cycle and was through the previous and will be for every for ev- and has been for everyone and will be for everyone going forward this all belongs to him and he wants us to just give it back he wants us to be involved in something bigger than just a political party, bigger than just an institution. He wants us, the scripture says, to usher in the kingdom of God on earth. What does that mean? That means that we stand up for justice wherever we find it. We stand against injustice wherever we see it. We, we oppose the pride, the proud, and we reach out and help the weak and the vulnerable and those who are struggling. That's what we're called to do. That's who we're called to be, to bring in the city of God, to bring in the kingdom of God. It's a bigger vision than than the current sort of political situation. I want to close today by reading some some of the really most powerful, challenging, and even convicting words um, from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. He wrote these words from a jail in Birmingham. And as I read them this week, I almost didn't put them in here. I just felt like they were so convicting. But they're also challenging and they're inspiring to us. And I want to read them to you. He says, there was a time, and he wrote this to a group of pastors. There was a time when the church was very powerful, he said. in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, he said, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace. But the Christians, he said, pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, that they were called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. He said things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. What he's saying is, let's be something greater than the status quo. Let's be something greater than the world as it is. Let's elevate the conversation from the mundane to the majestic. Let's look unto the hills from whence cometh our help. Our help comes from the Lord. So what do we do? We pray for mercy. We pray for justice. We pray for peace. And no matter the outcome of this election or any other, when it's over, we pull together to bring God's kingdom just a little bit closer to earth. We feed the poor. We keep clothing the naked, we keep freeing the prisoners, we keep serving the community, and we keep striving to honor and glorify God in our bodies, in our minds, in our spirits. Everywhere we go, we seek to be a light on a hill, a beacon of hope for the world. So that when all of the dust settles on this, they go, those people have something that I Need And it's greater and it's more transcendent and it's more beautiful and it's more powerful than anything else I've ever experienced in my life. And I don't understand it fully and I may not believe in it fully, but I want some of that. I want to be a part of what they have. We bring the kingdom of God on the earth because everything we have and everything we are and everything we hope to be belongs to God. And God is calling you and me and every single one of us today, to give it back. To give it back. Let me pray for you. Lord God, I thank you for the powerful words of your son Jesus. I thank you for the challenge that is built into these words. I pray, Lord, that every single one of us would leave here today and wrestle with these words and struggle with these words and think back and forth on these words and say, Jesus, what does this mean for me? What does it mean to give myself back to you? What does it mean to give you my hope? What does it mean to give you my fear? What does it mean to give you my life? What am I holding on to, Jesus, that I have not released back to you? What am I trying to carry on my own? that I haven't given back to you. Because God, I pray that your words would breathe life and hope and inspiration and strength and, courage and encouragement into the hearts of every single person here today. Lift us, Lord God, with your words and let your words today be breath and life for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.